Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Tomorrow, a podcast brought to you today with me, Nick Hewer, and Alliance. Our job in this series is to explore the global trends that will affect and shape businesses and hold industries in the years and decades to come. The tasks are to establish exactly how such trends will influence businesses, identify the risks that come hand in hand, and find out how all of us can either mitigate those risks or capitalise on the opportunities they present. In each episode, we'll focus on a particular trend and speak to the experts who are leading the way in considering its implications. For this first episode, our subject is the future of motoring, and we're diving into the world of autonomous vehicles. While self-driving cars may seem like something from science fiction, they could be in circulation in as little as three years' time. That's the ambition of the UK government, which is investing heavily in research and development to make the UK a world leader in this technology. Greg Clark, the Business and Energy Secretary, recently said that low-carbon and self-driving vehicles are the future, and this revolution has the potential to be worth 52 billion sterling to our economy by 2035. The opportunity to be at the forefront of this change is one we cannot afford to miss. Car makers like Jaguar Land Rover have already been carrying out trials on the UK's roads and manufacturers, including Toyota, Nissan, BMW and Ford, have also ambitious timelines to get fully autonomous vehicles on the roads by 2020 or 2021. So what will our towns and cities look like in the next few decades and what are the risks and benefits these vehicles could bring? To discuss this fascinating subject are three of the UK's leading experts. We've got Glenn Clark, he's Head of Transformational Propositions at Alliance UK. How are you, Glenn? Uh, very well, very well. Good morning. And we're joined, Glenn, by Tim Armitage. He's the Project Director at UK Autodrive, a consortium backed by the UK government that is trialling the use of connected and self-driving vehicles. And finally, we've got Matt Harvey. He's Director of Intellectual Property at Gowling WLG, a law firm working on the UK Autodrive project with a number of research papers in the field. Welcome to you, Matt. Thank you. Now, let's start uh, with you, Glenn. What do we mean by driverless cars and how many sort of levels are there? Um, I think it's generally accepted now that we talk about five levels of autonomy um, and uh, they range from uh, what we've seen in cars over the last few years where there's levels of assistance uh, that are supporting uh, your driving at kind of the first couple of levels whether it be in uh, aspects of braking or so on and so forth so quite a lot of people have got autonomous emergency braking for example uh, which can then take over braking if it feels that there is a uh, forthcoming incident that you're not reacting to quick enough. Mm -hmm. I think where it's starting to get to now is that uh, some cars on the road are now at uh, what we would call level three autonomy um, and what that describes is circumstances where the primary driving controls of um, uh, braking accelerating and uh, steering are uh, controlled by the vehicle in certain circumstances and where the driver is compelled to be uh, fully attentive and able to take control of the vehicle at any time so there's, there's cars on the road that can drive down motorways pretty much on their own uh, now to a certain degree but you are required to pay attention i think where it gets interesting and what people's perception of what autonomy 
autonomous vehicles are is when we get to level four, where you would be able to get uh, full trips end to end in fully autonomous mode, where the driver would be able to actually not take part in the driving ex- experience at all and not be compelled to be monitoring um, that environment. But there might be that might be only under certain conditions in a level four mm. uh, vehicle. So maybe in an urban area, but not on a country road, for example. And then I think the ultimate uh, end game is then level five, which is a fully autonomous vehicle where you could expect there to be actually no driving controls in the car and the car is picking you up and taking you to a destination um, uh, fully autonomously and there's no requirement on you to be able to drive at all. So you and the passengers can be having a game of poker in the back, as it were. Exactly, yes. And tell me this, it's inevitable now. No going back. We're on the road. I think so. I think this is definitely the uh, time where uh, science fiction has become science fact. And so I think if I think of the times when I first started considering the subject of autonomous vehicles, it seemed like it was maybe in 2030, then a few years later, more 2025. And now we might be talking uh, something as early as 2021. And so uh, that that date is only coming forward. And I, uh, Technically, it's still an open question. You think? You know, Everyone is working on it. Everyone is investing vast amounts in it. But no one knows for sure that level five is technically possible. I think Google is orders of magnitude away from the levels of error it needs to achieve. This, I think this level is the complexity. Five is isn't technically it? possible. It depends on the environment, though. I think that's well, the key that's point. level five. Level five is autonomy in any environment. Level four is autonomy in, in certain environments. In certain environments, exactly. I think the key thing here is that no one entity or government or uh, can, un- can can answer that question because mm. it's actually a collaboration of a whole sorts all sorts of different inputs, whether it be infrastructural, telecommunications, road infrastructure, motor manufacturers, technology, artificial intelligence, legislative environments. A whole load of stuff has to okay. be developed to make so that a reality. So we're moving into an uncertain period, mm. right? And an uncertain period, of course, poses all sorts of problems for you in the insurance industry and also for you in the, in the legal uh, profession too. Yeah, it's, it's Difficult very, times. Very hard. And I'll give you, give you an example of how well the law adapts to technology. And this is from my specialist field of IP. We all started buying video recorders and recording broadcast TV. That was technically copyright infringement mm. for 13 years before they managed to change the law. So... Mm. The law doesn't tend to catch up with technology the, that well, but the, the, U- way behind, yeah. the, the UK government here in this field is so keen that they are, they're supposed to be having a rolling program of legislative change just in time. Mm. But, but, and one of the reasons it's rolling is because they don't know exactly which way the technology will go. Yes. The, the key part for me is, uh, you know, as, uh, for, for all uh, entities that are involved in this, in this process is that you have to become learning organisations. And so that means that you're going to have to work out uh, how you're going to spend your time and effort in collaborative kind of modes of working to really understand um, what, what uh, you need to develop develop as a business to be able to um, both lead and support the emergence of this this kind of new technology and it's going to be it's going to be fast fast evolving you know that I think there is a there is a a risk if you think that you can uh, sit back and look from afar and, and, and let everyone else sort it out there is a need to be involved on the inside and starting to uh, shape how that that future may look and, and I think there needs to be an acceptance that things are changing so from, from a from an automotive industry point of view that there isn't a traditional automotive supplier that isn't forming an alliance with a lift share company or something like that. What impact uh, will it have on business, do you think? Um, I think the there is there's a couple of aspects of this. I think in 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 broad terms there is um, 
There is the aspect of time, uh, and so the, the impact on productivity that could be regained by uh, people being able to work when they're in a vehicle. There's obviously impacts on all sorts of industries related to uh, the transport of people uh, and goods that would be um, uh, dramatic. And uh, I think there is a, a number of different sectors uh, that could be uh, affected by this. And obviously, motor manufacturers and insurers um, would be uh, right in there in terms of how that would uh, these changes will affect their business going forward. The other aspect of that is productivity as well. That if you think about commuting being a significant part um, of people's daily life, um, we, we may not be very long away from when um, companies will pay for your transport to and from work on the prospect that you will be able to uh, work efficiently and effectively as you would in, in an office environment to be able to um, uh, increase productivity as well. We, we did a survey as part of UK Drive of how people will spend their time in an autonomous vehicle and the overwhelming response was look out the window <laughs> and, and that's fine you know, I think so, so Matt mm. tell us about the changes the urban environment itself uh, well we've been working on this with the with Transport for London and the Museum of Transport on a thought leadership programme and the dream is certainly that in an urban environment you'd get rid of privately owned cars you'd have no cars parked on the streets freeing up space you'd have a mixture of vehicle types some small um, maybe a sort of single person carrying uh, vehicles. So you'd have, the dream is far less congestion. You'd have smooth and seamless multimodal transport with a healthy mix of walking and cycling to ensure people don't turn into blobs. But what we don't know is if we can actually reach a transition in any meaningful way with the sort of challenges of infrastructure that that would require to enable. And also, if we have dramatically lowered mobility costs and there are predictions of 18 pence a mile, the induced demand may be such that so many people want to use uh, ride hailing when they aren't currently using it, but congestion will be worse than ever. Mm. Extraordinary. It's breathtaking. Tim... What sort of vehicles technology are already out there being used, not just here, but you know, across the world? Ah, well, I think the, the, the earliest forms of, of vehicle automation could be found in some of the big mineral mines um, out in Australia, in, in South Africa, yeah. where big dumper trucks, for example, have been autonomous for a while. Um, that there is a lot of vehicle autonomy in port operations, container handling vehicles. Yeah. Um, but I think certainly in the UK and, and probably one of the first types of autonomous vehicles were the, the autonomous pods which run between Terminal 5 and the, uh, the business parking at Heathrow, which are autonomous within their, uh, within their own infrastructure. And, and they've been operating quite successfully um, for about four years now, and, and people who use them love them. These technologies are, are coming more and more into play with things like autonomous emergency braking, uh, which and there's, there's two interesting things around that. One, it's mandatory for heavy goods vehicles in Europe now to be fitted with right? with autonomous emergency braking um, because it's such a, a, um, a great safety feature. So no longer should it be possible um, for a for a truck that's fitted with this to drive into the back of another truck, and that that's going to save lives. You know, it's a it's a great. I know thing. about this because I was on the M1 not that long ago, mm-hmm. too close to somebody who braked, and my car took over. Yes. Well, it it it, it sort of increased my braking power. You know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I was very grateful. And, to uh, and and within you know within new car development, there's a there's an industry uh, independent assessment of cars safety. It's it's called Euro NCAP. Uh, it's the new car assessment program, 
and to to have the maximum rating under under Euro NCAP, which is the five star, you now need to have um, autonomous emergency braking as part of your car systems. Okay, now, but it's happening. Testing mm. testing's well underway. It's out there. Yeah. So, UK Auto Drive, give us a a minute on that. Okay, UK Auto Drive. It was one of three programs that are partly sponsored by government, partly funded by industry, um, which really kicked off the the, the, the big uh, impetus of, of these test and development programs in the UK. Um, and an auto drive, I can, I can quite cl- quickly describe as having three parts. We have a passenger car program yeah. uh, where we work in collaboratively with, uh, with manufacturers who are based in the UK. Um, we have a cities program where the cities, we're based in Coventry and Milton Keynes for most of our work, and the cities are learning what they need to do to enable connected and autonomous vehicles to operate effectively in their city, but also the cities are learning what the new technology might do for them in terms of enabling some of the mobility aspects that they're looking for for the future. And, and then we have a last mile um, pod type vehicle, a bit like the Heathrow pods again, but we're, yeah. we're taking them out of their controlled infrastructure and uh, and letting them loose in the city. Yes, Milton Keynes. I use that station. I'm going to be bullied by lots of autonomous vehicles before I can... Um... There's a chance. Yeah. Huh? Uh-huh. You can have 40 of them running around. The, That's the plan. The bullying is likely to be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were talking about that. This is a real issue. <laughs> so, so the issue is that if a car, an autonomous vehicle, has to stop Will people ever let it pull out of a junction? Will they deliberately cut them up because they know they'll stop? We were joshing around earlier on about people in San Francisco, people hurling rocks at them and bullying them and crashing into them. And, yeah. Huh? yeah, that's yeah. a very intele- It's a very interesting sort of psychological issue, isn't it? it? Well, and, and driving behaviour is different in every country. And so one of the technical challenges of autonomous vehicles is to train them to know how you behave in different cities and different mm. countries. So, for example, in London, most junctions you won't get out unless you start to edge forward or pull out. Okay. And they'll have to actually learn to behave, to give the right signals to other road users. The urban realm is both very complex but very changeable. So I think, you know, having done several laps of the same route over different days in Coventry. We, we didn't come across the same situation more than once. In terms of predictability, other road users in terms of vehicles um, are, are quite predictable, but certainly pedestrians and cyclists are not. Um, so Matt, that, this is more your area, I think, isn't it? Because it's a minefield. For, 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 for lawsuits, people getting run over, people... Uh... <laughs> well, you, 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 yeah. you tell us. Yeah, yeah, well... The great hope, and one of the reasons the UK government is so squarely behind this technology, as well as trying to make sure it's part of our economy and we're exporting it rather than importing it, is the great promise that these cars will be significantly safer. And the idea is you have an autonomous vehicle which never gets tired, never gets drunk, never gets distracted, can look a distance of maybe two football fields using radar in two or maybe even more directions at once. So the hope is they will be superior to us in every way when it comes to driving and therefore there'll be fewer accidents and actually less moments of liability. But from a legal perspective, and I think insurance is a big issue here, we are moving potentially from a position where there are owner drivers of every vehicle on the road to mobility as a service where there may not even be a steering wheel in the car, there won't be a driver, there won't be an owner in the vehicle. And so when something goes wrong, we're now in the realms of product liability 
And so insurance will have to adapt to this new model when that comes in. And the idea is that the insurers will probably be still required so that there's rapid compensation when people are injured. And this is critical to public acceptance of a technology. But behind the scenes, a very complex series of product liability trials may take place to establish what the law will be in this area. So Matt, we've already had a number of fatalities now. How should society, how should the manufacturers react to this now? Well, the most recent was the very tragic accident involving an Uber self-driving vehicle, which had a test operator inside the car. But the car hit a pedestrian, I think, wheeling a a bicycle across the road. And it is just awful to watch the video. And Uber has quite rightly suspended its testing until it figures out what is going on. But we have to remember, as we've already discussed, the promise here is that ultimately self-driving cars are expected to be safer than human drivers. And the background here is in 2016 in the US, there were 40,000 road fatalities and one and a quarter million globally. And so I really think that governments and manufacturers need to push on as safely as possible in order to reach those greater benefits of an overall fall in deaths, ultimately. And a comparison can be drawn with the development of the railways. When the railways were put in, hundreds of workers died building these railways, and they had de facto subsidies from governments in order to to make this this new technology a reality. Mm. And indeed, when the first cars appeared on the road, they were often preceded by a man with a red flag, and then we had the cat size, and then we had the speed limits and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, as you say, in the US, 40,000 deaths? Yep, in one year. Yeah. And the whole point of autonomous vehicles is to make it the roads so much safer. Exactly. Now, Glenn, you're the insurance man. What does it mean to you and Allianz? I, I think the... Uh, Allianz has got a, a wide-ranging uh, role to play in this. As a global business, we are certainly uh, collaborating between uh, different operating entities to uh, to face the challenge of what this brings and the opportunities that uh, that are afforded. Uh, we're working across this in many different ways, whether that be looking at it from a kind of technical research perspective through things like the uh, Allianz Zentrum, uh, Zentrum for Technic, uh, where we are testing these technologies. We have deep relationships with motor manufacturers. There are obviously some uh, large um, effects on what the balance of fleet and personal lines business might look like in the future, what the balance of risks might look like in the future, the emergence of cyber uh, and the emergence of product liability type aspects and so on and so forth. And so there is a wide ranging number of topics uh, that the company is actively uh, investigating uh, and supporting. And we're, uh, we're very much um, looking forward to taking on that challenge and, and, and leading the way uh, in that regard. And I think the the direction of travel is that the the kind of role of the primary insurer uh, looks to be maintained, uh, and so the owner of that vehicle uh, involved in a uh, a crash would then be making a claim very similar to what they do now. Uh, and, and as we've said, the uh, the complexity will then come around then determining uh, the actual fault um, uh, within the uh, uh, within the accident and whether that then would be something that would require subrogation from uh, the manufacturer 
or the component supplier or whatever it may be. Uh, and so I think the, the key part around how the insurance model needs to develop is that we have the customer at the heart of it. And so the, the, the affected parties um, uh, have their uh, issues resolved uh, quickly and efficiently. Uh, and then it's going to be uh, the, the, um, the duty um, of the insurers and the manufacturers to make sure that we come up with a process that then is able to, behind the scenes, as you say, um, uh, recover uh, and rectify the situation accordingly. Um, and, and this is something, I think the role of the primary insurer being maintained is obviously good news from, from an insurance industry. The complexity around them being able to uh, uh, work out uh, whether the, auto- the autonomous state or the, 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 uh, the way that the, the vehicle operated was at fault um, then becomes more complicated because then it becomes about data, becomes about data access. And that's one gray area that still hasn't been resolved really, which is how does an insurer uh, get fair uh, and efficient access to the data in order to be able to ascertain um, what the circumstances yeah. of the accident were. And, and there will be a lot of data. I mean, from, from even from the, the last, mile, last mile vehicles that we're talking about running uh, in Milton Keynes, we, we think we'll generate about a terabyte of data every day. Um, so, you know, in the event of an accident, that, that information, you know, we'll, we'll know exactly what happened. Exactly. The, the issue yet to be resolved is who's going to have access to that data. Well, well it's, yes. it's even more complicated. Mm. One, one, there's all sort of legal challenges. Should this be disclosed? Is it mm. proportionate and the like if you've got terabytes of data to process? But the other thing is fundamentally we're moving from a system which has been written by a person and could be followed logically to an algorithm which has been developed by a machine and may have thousands of weightings. Just It's just a pile of numbers, as mm. some, some people describe it. And whether you can meaningfully audit what happened and figure out what went wrong is an open question. And obviously, there's always a third, you know, often a third party involved in an accident that may or may not be autonomous itself. And so in that transitional phase, there is the complexities of the different parties involved in the accident and then trying to get uh, the right version of events, which could be a combination of normal practice in terms of a human's view of what happened versus the data provided by one of the vehicles. Well, let me in tell that you, I had a, was the victim of a hit and run which wrote my car off. Oh, that I had a, uh, a camera on the, uh, on the dashboard. Now I have. Not only one that looks forward, but looks back in the hope that actually the next time somebody, you know, decides to crash into me, at least I'll have some evidence. But these vehicles, the autonomous vehicles, will be absolutely packed with data, surely. And sensors, yes. Isn't that surely a great thing from your point of view? Because you should be able... Absolutely, have I think an absolute handle on what happened. Ultimately, the the vision would be that you would be able to settle claims in a more efficient way than you can now, because we're not talking about uh, humans' different version of events and the the kind of arguments that go on, and it becomes something that's data driven and perhaps algorithmically processed to determine uh, to determine fault. And so, uh, the prospect is is that eventually that um, that would be uh, the case. But I think there is quite a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then uh, to to get all parties involved in. Uh, in understanding how that process works and making sure it's fair and equitable. And getting the data, is that a, a, a question for legislation? I, do you think? I think so. I've been, I think that's something that certainly Allianz has been um, uh, looking at uh, from a kind of lobbying perspective for uh, some time is just exactly what the uh, the data provision will be. And certainly uh, there would be uh, anxiousness if, it, if there was a perception that the motor manufacturers became the guardians of the data uh, and were in control of, of its release. That would, that, would, that would compromise the ability to deliver an efficient claims process, I think. Okay, Matt, let's look forward, say, 10 years. Mm. How do you reckon insurance can be working? How different will it be in 10 years' time? Well, 
I think Glenn is absolutely right that for the next step, the plan from our government under the Automotive and Electric Vehicles Bill, which is in draft at the moment, is just mm. to carry on business as usual, really. Mm. The insurance is focused on, a, on an owner-driver. But what Ford is saying, for example, is by 2021, they literally want to have fleets of cars without steering wheels on the roads, at which point there isn't a driver. Mm. And we will, in fact, have to have a different business model. And I think, as we discussed, this is going to be ultimately behind the scenes a product liability issue and speed of compensation will be critical. But insurance isn't necessarily the only model. So the EU parliament has looked at robotics generally and has proposed a tax on the use of robotics and, and a car would be a robot in this scenario to to create a central compensation fund uh, to compensate people when harm is done by by a machine. And in a more sci-fi way, they're even talking about in the fullness of time, the machines themselves having some degree of rights and responsibilities. Oh, really? Oh, really? Now, the, <laughs> let me throw this in. Cybersecurity. Everybody's terrified. To what extent is it terrifying you guys? Um, quite a lot, I think, is, is the short answer. The longer answer is it's already an issue for vehicles mm. because increasingly vehicles are now connected to the internet um, in order to stream content, uh, navigation and the like. And certainly in 2015, Chrysler had to recall 1.4 million Jeeps because it had been proven that they could be hacked remotely, even uh, the steering and braking systems. So this is already an issue. And these are cars which have... 100 million lines of code as we speak, much of it a mix of legacy code and new code, which would be incredibly hard to unpick now. But autonomous vehicles add all new layers of issues. So first of all, they rely on sensors. They're also supposed to rely on incoming data about the location and speed of other vehicles, about infrastructure and the like. So even if somehow miraculously you could make your code tamper-proof, you still have the issue that your sensors can be fooled and fooled in ways that no human will spot because the AV will be sensitive. It will be interpreting the world in ways we don't quite understand. It can be fooled in ways we can't predict. And also, if you can spoof GPS data and the like, you can trick a car into thinking it's somewhere it isn't. And unlike a mere connected vehicle, which at the moment you can swerve off the road if you really want, because it knows how to drive... You can program it or hack it to steal itself, to kidnap someone or to kill someone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when in, in the development of these systems, what we will see and are seeing already are some quite independent systems within the vehicle. Um, and, and certainly some of the vehicles that we're dealing with auto drive have, have as much code in the vehicle trying to validate what the vehicle is doing um, under the control of its autonomous system uh, as there is in the autonomous system as well. So there, there, there's more than one system in the vehicle and, and effectively one of those systems is is vigilant within the vehicle saying, well, is this is this a sensible thing for the vehicle to be doing? And if if that isn't the case, then then the systems will, uh, will close down, basically. How... Uh concerned to you then back at Allianz? I think uh, I think this is obviously a primary area of concern in terms of a new and emerging risk that, that's connected to the development of these vehicles. And so, uh, insofar that they, we we have to we have to develop our understanding as a business of what the what, what the scale and reach of this and what the consequences of how to um, uh, to react when uh, the, you know a, a car has been compromised. And so, um, I think this is very much a learning process. And um, you know, for an insurer that tends to um, spend a lot of time looking at the past to predict the future. 
future in terms of how our traditional models will work, well, then we're going to have to start looking at, at ways of adapting our knowledge to uh, accommodate new and emerging risks that uh, became uh, that will develop very quickly over time. You know, as uh, as we've said, you know, th- 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 there are simply circumstances that we cannot foresee right now, and, and this because this is new, because this is emerging, because it is connected, because there are a variety of different parties in, involved. Um, I think we're only at the very early stages, really, of being able to understand what those real cyber risks are uh, and what the consequences of them will be. And, and they will change over time as, exactly, as, yeah. as, the, as the threat changes. Um, and, and those threats are not just to, uh, to the world of connected and autonomous cars, but it's to utilities and, and, and everything else in the world. You know, we're, becoming, we're, we're becoming very reliant on, uh, on systems. Yeah, and I think that's the key point. And it's something you mentioned earlier, Matt, around this, that, you know, how the, this has already been in play for some time in terms of the, um, as cars have become less uh, mechanical and more electronic, we've already seen, for example, uh, issues around security uh, of vehicles being compromised. And so you only have to go on YouTube and you can see examples of um, sophisticated criminals using technology to, to be able to steal a car as opposed to a crowbar and, you know, jimmying a door open. You know, this is, this is moving into a different realm. Sure. I'm sure. Let's get down to a sort of rather mundane level. What happens when things go wrong then? A breakdown. What happens? I think Where are you then? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as um, uh, Allianz provides uh, assistance services um, uh, as part of our uh, offering now, and so certainly uh, uh, as an insurer, understanding what happens when things go wrong is obviously a primary concern of ours. And so obviously the ability to uh, assure the safety and security of the passengers is paramount, as well as them being able to uh, recover uh, the vehicle if it does become compromised. And certainly from, from my perspective, you know, I'll, I'll be going to another meeting after this, well, I'll probably be getting an Uber across town or whatever it might be. If that was to get compromised and I can just get out and get into another one, then that's probably not such a big deal. But if I was going to put my kids in an autonomous vehicle to take them to school or what have you, then I would be very, very, um, I want to understand very clearly about what would happen if that vehicle was to become compromised. And certainly if you had a vulnerable passenger in a car, what happens um, if that vehicle does become compromised? So we've got to make sure those services exist. One of the great dreams is, of course, but because these will be connected vehicles and with all of this diagnostics, that will actually anticipate issues. So just as your phone currently says, would you mind if I updated the software between these hours while you're asleep? The car will say, if you own a car, will you mind if I just pop to the garage and have this repair done because it's, uh, this, this brake disc is looking a bit worn? Mm-hmm. Likewise, if your car is beginning to break down and there are fleets of autonomous vehicles, one would expect a new one will arrive very rapidly, anticipating your need. And I think that there's obviously an interesting part there because there's a human involved in this. There's obviously technology that's that's, that's working on its own and having processes involved in how that would uh, understand. But there's got to be the human kind of machine interface to make sure that the people in the uh, in that situation understand what's going to happen next and understand how what they can do and how they can behave and, and how their safety and security is being uh, assured and looked after. Yes, and, and, and in, in terms of the technology, there's a lot of work going on now which, which is from a, a really a different perspective to, to have vehicles fail in an operational way. So it's, mm. it's very much they, they, they won't be functioning perfectly, but they, may, they will still have a degraded mode of operation, which will enable them to be brought to a halt uh, in, a, in a safe and secure place rather than just failing in, in the middle lane of the motorway or something like that. I mean, Matt, you spoke very eloquently about the, the increase in passenger safety. Mm. You know, as you say, people aren't, uh, if they're not, you know, you can have a drink in the back of an autonomous vehicle and not uh, 
be worried about things. But there is an issue here about public perception and reassurance. How long is it going to take to break through that so that people absolutely understand that driving or travelling in an autonomous vehicle is okay? Well, to give you an analogy, the first autopilot systems in aviation were introduced in 1912. (laughs) And so this is very mature technology, but only... Last year, there was a survey which showed that people would not accept a pilotless plane, even though that is a far easier task than a driverless car. So there is no guarantee that it will be accepted. However, we've done quite a few surveys as a part of UK Auto Drive, and people readily can see the benefits of autonomous vehicles for other people. None of them seem to think it has any application to themselves. But other people, what a brilliant idea. Um, but I think the insurance part, the rapid compensation is going to be critical. I think cybersecurity is going to be critical. And I know one of the issues is the extent to which car companies are cooperating on this. And I can tell you that if cybersecurity becomes a selling point, they have failed. I think there's a simple question at the heart of all of this, which is how safe is safe enough uh, before you you would approve these vehicles to kind of act in a fully autonomous mode? And so what what does that look like compared to the prevailing level of, you know, accidents and severity of accidents that occur now? Uh, Is it going to be okay for autonomous vehicles to exhibit a a level of uh, accident risk which is equivalent to the the prevailing norm of human drivers? Is it going to have to be substantially better? Is it going to have to have the right types of accident? Because if it had any idiosyncratic accidents, that would very much start to um, disrupt people's perception of of, of whether these are things that they can be comfortable with. So to a certain extent, their comfort will be drawn from the fact that they seem to behave as though you would if you were the driver. What about driving tests? Is it cheerio to the old driving test? Well, there's been long-term data over at least 10 years that people are taking fewer driving tests and the young have far more choices as to how to spend their leisure time. And Mm -hmm. the idea of having your own car is no longer critical to an enjoyable life. So I think this is a long-term trend independent of autonomous vehicles. And I think the availability of cheap uh, ride-hailing, certainly in urban centres, has also encouraged that. So, you know, we certainly as a family are not sure we actually need a car now with current technology, with what's Mm -hmm. available in the city. So driving tests may well be a thing of the past. And I think if you are at that stage of level five kind of full autonomy where there there aren't any driving controls, then of course you will not be required to um, uh, have a a driving test or or a qualification in order to be in one of those cars. And, And as you say, if the utility of the options that are available to to you are such that you can um, uh, deliver your own mobility to your satisfaction uh, and and cost, then then that that pattern uh, uh, will only accelerate of people choosing not to drive in the future. My sense is the youngsters these days, in my day, desperate to get a car. You had to have a car when you were 17 and passed the test. Mm. These days, they're not interested. And you, as an insurance man, may well have noticed, I don't know whether you've got their data with you now, whether the young people seeking car insurance as much as they did 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Yes, I mean, I think the the levels of car ownership and, you know, that point around becoming 17 and, you know, discovering your freedom and the ability to be able to uh, to connect, uh, I, we've obviously got very much more uh, many ways that people can feel connected to their friends now, the you know, advent of social media and so on and so forth, um, the, the, the urbanisation of environment where people have got alternative modes of transport, as we've talked about, uh, mean that the car is no longer um, the, the access point to becoming uh, free. Yeah. Uh, and so 
so yes there is definitely a perception change and I think there's also just a thing about time you know um, most I know a lot of people talk about their love of driving and they would never get in an autonomous vehicle or buy an autonomous vehicle because they love to be able to drive but the vast majority of the journeys that you take it realistically are fairly mundane you know in terms of the commute and so on and so forth now if someone said to me when I drive to the airport every week I could press a button and it would do it for me and I could get that time bank uh, back to um, you know organize my day or uh, organize other things or get my weekly shop done or whatever it might be um, then that release of time back to you I think will become a, a very um, a quick uptake of consumer behavior change and positive changes for business and society as a whole all three of you what do you reckon man well I think the number one dream is is more road safety and i think beyond that it's very hard to know if it's a net benefit or or loss just as the smartphone is a, is a mixed blessing where you no longer have uh, any downtime and uh, you people walk around with their heads down so likewise they'll have wonderful access to mobility potentially subject to huge congestion issues um, but it may be isolating if there's no human being with you in the vehicle and Glenn, um, I'm, I probably take a slightly more positive view. So um, uh, in, I think the outlook for me is is that exactly how long this takes, but I think this will be a highly transformative effect on uh, society as a whole, uh, and probably one of the most significant uh, things that will change in our lifetimes. Um, it's such a uh, there's such a wide range of different aspects that could be improved through this. But, of course, we have to recognise that there would be uh, unknowns uh, that have to be overcome. Uh, but generally speaking, my, my, my perception is this, is that will be uh, overwhelmingly positive in the long term. Uh, but I think there will be a difficult process to realise those benefits. And finally, Tim. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hopeful that it will, be, uh, will bring positive benefits. I think we'll need a lot of behavioural change. Um, which, you know, as human beings, we're not particularly good at. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think the, you know, the perceived benefits, if we can realise those, by far outweigh the disbenefits. And for those visually impaired, I guess, a huge... Ah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity. We, we've, we've engaged with um, Guide Dogs for the Blind, for example, who initially thought we were the worst thing that they'd ever heard of. Uh, in terms of bringing our last mile pods into the cities because we were just going to import a new hazard into their already hazardous environment. Uh, but once we'd explained what the technology will do, that it will, the car, the vehicles, the pods will see them, they'll react accordingly. Uh, within the space of 24 hours, we went from, you know, this is a real hazard, this is going to be a nightmare, we don't want you anywhere near us, to, to those groups saying this is fantastic, this is a new form of mobility, we're going to be able to drive. And those groups have now engaged with us and, the, and they're guiding the design of the vehicles to make them uh, more and more accessible to them. So certainly for, for people who are excluded from mobility now, so some of the things that are being developed will, will be fantastic. Interesting. Now, here's the big question for all three of you. Who's jumping into an autonomous vehicle without a thought, a care in the world? What do you recommend? Absolutely. And I expect Tim to extend an invitation to Milton Keynes tomorrow. That sounds good, yes. Is that right, Tim? Visiting days, Wednesdays. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you... Uh, well, care in the world, um, uh, I think I'd definitely jump in uh, and I'd be very uh, keen to understand what that experience is like. Whether I put my kids in one tomorrow, don't know. Mm. But me, yes, I'd jump and in. And you wouldn't care flash. that you're not in charge? 
Um, I don't think so. I think um, I've got level, you know, degrees of autonomous control within my uh, car at the moment, and I'm quite comforted by how capable it is. And that's with relatively uh, simplistic technologies. Mm. So I suspect the speed with which you will become uh, build trust and build confidence will actually be fairly rapid. Uh, but obviously. We can see that there, there, something unforeseen might uh, happen and you might feel very differently. So I think it will all be a personal experience. Indeed. And from my part, I'm a, a car person to my bootstraps. And yet driving in this country can be such a bore. I would leap into one. Yes, I think that's true. In, in heavy traffic and commuting. Oh, I think it's a great idea. Well, thank you very much to all three of my guests for exploring the world of automated vehicles. They were Glenn Clark. Head of Transformational Propositions Alliance, Tim Armitage, Project Director at UK Auto Drive and Transport Systems Lead at Arup, and finally Matt Harvey, Director of Intellectual Property at law firm Gowling WLG. Thank you very much, all three. That brings this first episode to an end, but please do subscribe to the series through your podcast app. That way, you'll be sure of never missing an episode. And we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review too. We'll be back to explore another major global trend in the next episode of Tomorrow. In the meantime, from me, Nick Hewer, it's goodbye.